0: Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey we will examine philosophy, religion and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft.
1: Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-hosts, Brother Axel Savari, and today's subject is The Kabbalion and Hermeticism.
2: This is a fascinating book, Brother Matias, and one that... uh... I think at this point, almost every initiate into uh universal co-masonry encounters very pretty much very early in their Masonic career. This is one of the first and, and even before that, honestly, in the uh in the interview process, this is usually the book that's most often recommended to get people used to occult concepts, occultism, and the kind of mystery tradition that is wrapped up in Freemasonry.
1: So the Kabbalion was a book written in nineteen twelve by the three initiates. And um, it has seven hermetic principles that it goes through. I think a lot of people that read this book think that this is hermeticism. Mm -hmm. It's, It's an interpretation of hermeticism. It's a commentary essentially on the Emerald Tablets, which is a document that's probably no more than a page or two. Um, which supposedly is a document that survives from the time of Atlantis.
2: Well, and it's also, so the three initiates, by the way, first of all, the three initiates is a great uh, pseudonym here because it was it was written probably by William Walker Atkinson and maybe a few of his friends. He owned uh, a... Yeah, like,
1: like Paul Foster case. The
2: Masonic Publishing Company?
1: No, it's Yogi Publication. But Yogi Publication was headquartered in the basement of a Masonic temple in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, and, 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 and um, Atkinson was a Mason. So there's a huge connection to Masonry here uh, through
2: the supposed writers. I mean,
1: Paul uh, Foster Case was also a Mason, wrote several books on
2: Masonry. Were they theosophists too?
1: Well, I mean, it depends how we look at the word. I mean, a lot of people consider themselves theosophists in the sense of it being a word of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, learning the divine knowledge of God. Uh, were they members of the Theosophical Society? Um, I don't know that. I I would I would probably say probably they were. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they were at least getting information from the Theosophical well, Society. Well
2: they they probably at least heard of the of the American headquarters in Wheaton, which is not far from Chicago. Like if their publishing company is in Chicago and they're esoterically minded, they probably heard about the TS headquarters in Wheaton. And I, and I say all this because this is a great example of the golden age of esotericism in terms of like writings because there are so many books like this coming out like Brother of the Third Degree, The Kabbalion, all this kind of stuff is coming out of... Um, of the Theosophical Society's influence, not necessarily directly from the Theosophical Society, but this kind of reemergence of esoteric thought was was really popular at the turn of the 20th century.
1: A hundred percent, I would bet that they were influenced by Blavatsky and by the Secret Doctrine. Uh, I mean, I mean uh, Atkinson under his other uh, pen names, uh, the Yogi Ramasharika, and uh, was it William uh, Demont? Ma-
2: Theron Q Dumont. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: he writes a bunch of books. Great books, actually, like the art of breathing or the science of breathing, um, Raja Yoga, and and they're very they're Western explanations of Eastern um, spiritual practices. They're excellent books, and you can still buy them today. And, and I do recommend all these books. You know, what, what you take from it, you know, is is obviously up to the reader. But you know, he writes books on how to like concentrate your mind. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that kind of segues into a lot of people think this is sort of the beginning of the New Age thought and that Mm -hmm. a lot of his books is this confusion of old metaphysical and spiritual ideas and is being bastardized into um, making money.
2: Well, and there's definitely an aspect in the Kabbalah. So the Kabbalah in the book, it it quotes – another book that's also called the cabal because the Kabbalion by the three initiates that you can get is a commentary on the Kabbalion that the three initiates possess and so the Kabbalion is constantly quoting the Kabbalion, and you're not really sure which Kabbalion you're actually being (laughs) you're being read to from um but this is kind of common of these authors is like they had all these ideas and so like yeah maybe there is you know a golden Kabbalion that's written on you know platinum place or whatever and exists in the akashic realm only but they, uh, they, they, they kind of use these concepts to perpetuate these ideas, which I don't think cheapens it in any way. But you, you'll hear like if you ever read it, the Kabbalion is constantly quoting the Kabbalion, and it's kind of confusing at first because you're wondering which copy you're actually reading. But it's still good ideas. Well,
1: when I read it the first time, I just was laughing. I'm like, man, the three initiates love themselves so much that they quote themselves. I'm like, wow, man, I should do that.
2: So in the Kabbalion, it's kind of it's become famous in in the New Age uh, kind of circles or sphere, I guess you'd call it. Um, like you're saying, in the sense that there are these seven um, seven Hermetic principles or laws. And it's funny, this is one of these concepts that has been expanded out so many times in like blogs and YouTube videos that people refer to it as, you know, the seven natural laws, the seven universal laws. People that have never even heard of the Kabbalion are repeating the Kabbalion and calling it all these different titles. But it has really kind of formed the basis of a lot of new age thought. I mean, I think the book is excellent and any... You know, practicing
1: occultists, esoterists, should read this book. And I think it's a great place to start because I think it's very simply written and it introduces you to these ideas. But to, to repeat, like this is based on the Emerald Tablet, which is, which is a document, um, at least historically, that is 15, 1,800 years old. It's, it, it was preserved in the Middle East and passed down to us. And it comes from an age of, uh, when Hermeticism was a major part of civilization. You know, uh, hermeticism was something that was practiced in a lot of civilizations two, three thousand years ago, especially in the Middle East and in Africa. And what we know of hermeticism um, is not the Cabalian again. This mm-hmm. is something written in nineteen twelve. Hermeticism is usually a patchwork of documents um, and their that interpretations. Way predates this. Yeah, and 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 then of course it, hermeticism becomes Gnostic. You know, around the the turn of. Of the, of, the, of the millennia where Jesus comes and all that. So th- we're not going to get into any of that. Those are different podcasts. Uh, but just for people to know, the Kabbalion is not the one only true source of Hermeticism. And you also have to take it within a, a, a modern lens because it is a 20th century document. It's not an ancient document. Don't think it is, and anybody that tries to convince you of it is lying
2: to you. Mm-hmm. And and that's not to say that it doesn't, it, you know, it certainly has worth and is definitely something that's worthwhile to read and to understand and to get acquainted with the ideas. But like you said, it's a reference to a much older tradition, which itself isn't really structured or in, in the sense that, you know, we think of ideas originating from one thinker and then being passed down. Hermeticism, like you said, it's, it's a quilt historically of all of these different um, principles and ideas that have kind of been stitched together over time, by, even by various religions or philosophies, and it's kind of adapted itself to wherever it finds itself in history.
1: So let's, let's list off the, the seven laws, and then we're going to go through them and, of course, give our commentary on each. So we're going to do a commentary on a commentary.
2: <laughs> on a commentary. On a commentary.
1: <laughs> so the first principle is the principle of mentalism. The second is the principle of correspondence. The third, the principle of vibration. The fourth, the principle of polarity. The fifth, the principle of rhythm. The sixth, the principle of cause and effect. And finally, the seventh, the principle of gender.
2: So before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of the principles, there's this great quote from the Kabbalion, and it might be a quote of the Kabbalion from the Kabbalion, but it says, The principles of truth are seven. He who knows these, understandingly, possesses the magic key, before whose touch all the doors of the temple fly open. What, te- what doors of the temple do you think they're talking about there? All right, this is
1: not a real temple made with actual hands. This is the temple made not of hands, eternal in the heavens. And the key is, you find this in a lot of esoteric traditions. I mean, this is like the veil of Isis. Like, we are trying to move from a place of knowledge to a place of wisdom. And the key is what unlocks the door to this temple of wisdom. And so all this esoteric so all this, this metaphysics that has been taught for thousands of years is an attempt to teach individuals the means by which to attain wisdom. Because wisdom is knowledge in practice. Mm -hmm. You you can collect all the knowledge in the world. You can be the smartest guy in the whole world. But at the end of the day, it doesn't do you any good unless it's applied. Mm -hmm. And it's applied, and then it becomes wisdom.
2: Well, that's interesting, too, because a key has to be applied to a lock in order to open a door. Just having a key does you no good. Unless you know where the lock is and how to turn it,
1: or you have a door without a key, then you'll never be able to open the door. Mm-hmm. So you need both of these.
2: Yeah. Well, and this so this temple idea, I think, is important to bear in mind as we go through the podcast because these the the Kabbalion is meant as a stepping stone. It's not you know a complete a completeness in and of itself. These are they're very much principles to be used. Like the idea behind this is that you. You use these principles in order to shape your thinking. And by shaping your thinking, you end up kind of guiding yourself more accurately through the world. And, and you know, if we look at Theron Q. Dumont's uh, The Principles of, of Concentrating the Mind or the Concentration of the Mind or whatever that book was, like, that was definitely kind of along these same lines that Atkinson was thinking when he and maybe some others wrote The Kabbalah.
1: Well, just a little side note. When you when you ever watch that, uh, that, I don't know, was that documentary or show The Secret? Uh-huh. Where it's teaching you how you can use your mind to get really rich, which is, I mean, that thing just like destroyed the metaphysical world. Yeah. Uh, if you are if you like that, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I think the basis of it is true, but well, that the, it really manipulated a lot of people in thinking they could just sit around and wish for a
2: Ferrari. Well, because this is the basis of that idea. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. The, that that documentary and that whole system of thinking that came out of that, like you can see the fingerprints of the Kabbalion in that.
1: It's a complete rip-off, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, a total yeah. rip-off. So, these seven principles, I think it's important that we look at the number seven before we get started. Because, you know, there's seven classical planets, there's seven chakras, uh, there are seven seals in Revelation, uh, there's seven um, angels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, so you, you you constantly hear in in the religious documents of all the world religions... Seven being some sort of holy number. And so here we are with seven hermetic laws. Why do you think, Brother Axel, it's seven, not six or five or eight or nine or ten? Why is it seven?
2: Well, I think it, it, it comes from a study that's older than the Kabbalion in the sense that like, there is some spiritual connection between number and reality. And understanding Mm -hmm. that that by proceeding through the, you know, the first 10 numbers in our system, which everything else is built off of, that there is some kind of, I I believe it was Pythagoras that came up with this idea that one through 10 have these specific spiritual meanings that one you know, one is all contained, two is divided, three is, you know, the two having a child, four is the elements, the elements of the earth. Five is considered the number of man. Six is the number of completion. Seven is this holy number. Like, and you have all of these instances in nature, like the um, the seven colors of, of refracted light that emerge, the seven colors of the rainbow. There's this idea that seven is a kind of mystical number, that it represents um, a transition into the mystery of being from the kind of more earthly uh, numbers. And it's a kind of a midway point. And it's also balanced. It has three and three on each side, and it, it balances on a center point, right? Because seven's the first one. Well, not the first one, but a number where you can have a perfect balance.
1: Yeah, no, I agree 100%, and, and I'll just add a few few things to that. I mean, I think seven, like you brought up light. I mean, in, in the electromagnetic spectrum, there there's basically seven colors that we can see with the visible eye. Mm-hmm. Um, red, orange, yellow, um, green, blue, indigo, and violet. I mean, obviously there's shades of all these, but there's, there's, there's these seven colors and that's what makes up a rainbow. So, you know, as you're saying, like, I think the ancients derived from nature the truth that they taught in their temples. So the number seven is because we see seven in nature. And well, let's just use the rainbow because it's easy. So the rainbow has these seven colors. You, know, you see this in nature. And so then they're like, well, then what do each of these colors mean? And so they established a law based on all of these. And uh, you, you see the same thing in the Old Testament with Noah making um, a pact with God, uh, the Noahite law, which is a law of seven. This is, this is before the Ten Commandments, and it's, it's seven rules. It's the original uh, commandments that the Jews followed. And it, they call it the Rainbow Covenant. You know, it, comes, it comes from the time after the Flood. So I think what the ancients are doing is they look at nature, they see something, and they keep seeing. Well, this number seven keeps reappearing in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it in music, you see it in 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 mathematics. And so what they do is like, well, we have to derive our systems around these truths. Because mm-hmm. so I think I think today a lot of people make up a lot of stuff just based on random thoughts and dreams and and concepts. But the ancients were looking at nature as mm-hmm. the template. So I think the seven is there because it's in nature.
2: Yeah. Well, if we look, you know, we look at the seven days of the week and we can say that's an arbitrary, you know, man-made creation, but where does the seven days of the week come from? They come from the, the ancients assignment of the seven classical planets each one of those days. I, I don't even know how many people are aware that each of each of the days of the week in English actually comes from, um, or the names themselves come from a classical planet. Like each each day has a planet associated with it because, again, that's what they're looking at is like, what they're seeing in nature is what they're replicating in the structures mm-hmm. that they're coming up with for their civilizations. So you have seven days a week. Well, why do you have seven days of the week? Because there are seven planets that rule the destiny of, of mankind. Why are there seven classical planets? Well, those are the seven that we can see with the naked eye. What else can we see with the naked eye, the seven colors of the rainbow? So it's, it's, it's all coming from this kind of like experiential and empirical knowledge of the world around them. And they're like, well, if I'm experiencing this, then this is probably the structure of what's going on.
1: So in Hermeticism, and this is not really mentioned in the Kabbalion per se, but the number seven comes directly from the seven planets. So each planet they saw as a governor of fate. So there were seven fates that ruled man. Now, this is manifested in astrology. So that's when when you look at the planet Jupiter or Saturn, they have certain properties that affect your personality in a natal chart, for example. So the the Hermeticists said, well, there's these seven planets, and they are binding us uh, to the earth. This is a prison of which, you know, our spirit or soul is trapped in a body, and we have to escape. But we have fate around us. We have these seven planets, these seven governors. So what we need to do is act in such a way as to overcome the power of the fates. And by overcoming their power, we can escape this prison of flesh and ascend into...
2: Uh, this reunion with God, and that's essentially what these principles are meant to be. It's it, it's how those fates operate, and and the the basic idea of the Kabbalah is if you understand how all this stuff works, you too can use it. You can't break it. You can't go against it. You can't you know you can't imagine yourself more powerful than these principles. They're they're just baked into nature. They're baked into the universe. But if you understand how they operate, then you can adjust your actions accordingly so that you're not buffeted from side to side by all these things that are blindsiding you, that you don't, you don't understand why these things are happening to you. Well, it's because you don't understand these seven principles. And so the key is what you
1: just said. The key to opening the temple doors is understanding your own nature, overcoming those things that hold you back. And then opening the doors of the temple is essentially escaping the power of the planet's and, and going up to this temple made not of hands in which, you know, the great creator dwells in.
2: So let's get into, I like that you ended on the great creator there, because let's get into the first principle of uh, the Kabbalion, which is the principle of mentalism. And the way that the Kabbalion defines this is that the all is mind and that the universe is mental. So w- what are they saying when they say the, the all is mind? What is the all and what does it mean that it's mind?
1: I really like this term. It's a great it's it's a great title for God, the all because it it's kind of reduces all the cultural bias and um anthropomorphic kind of viewing of God. It just reduces it to the all, you know. It's genderless, shapeless, uh, but it's everything. So I mean there's an allusion here to pantheism, you know, that the universe is one big sort of organic mass. Um, that we call God, and so therefore we all are a part of god as good so this this concept isn 't organic it 's basically saying that everything is is mental, and that you know we are basically like a neuron in god 's brain, mm-hmm. but we all make up god we 're part of god we 're not mm-hmm. God in totality, but we are a shard of God,
2: so this is kind of the I would say the, the origin point of of one of the, what I would call the faulty new age ideas that, you know, we're all God. I'm God, you're God. No, you're not God. You're a part of God, but you are subject to, and, and you know, uh, to not use the word God, you are part of the all, but you are not the all because you are peace. Like I can look at you, your body ends at your skin. Like you don't, you don't continue expanding past the limits of your physical body. So I can say that there are boundaries to you. But what the, uh, the three initiates would say, what the Kabbalion would say is that the all cannot be put in any kind of a boundary. If I can see an edge to it, it's not the all. If it can be defined, if it can be known, if it can be held, it's not the all. The all encompasses all, and therefore like it can't have these edges and boundaries by which we discern different objects. Because if I can discern a difference between the all and something else, then it wasn't the all. Whatever contains both of those things is the all. The all
1: is an abstraction. Mm-hmm. It's the best way in human words to try to explain the highest. And this kind of links in a little bit with Descartes because, you know, what does he say? You know, his famous... Uh, I, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And it's it's essentially a premise by saying that we are thinking beings and because we think, we know we exist. Mm-hmm. And if the universe is mental, as the Kabbalion says, then everything we do is sort of rooted in thought processes, which is true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, reality is nothing but the way we think it is. I mean, if if somebody... That's why we have so many different systems in the world, right? Some people think the universe is an illusion. Some people think it's an objective truth. Some people think it's A or B or C. And for you, it's absolutely true. Like we are completely rooted in our thought. Our thought is who we are. It Mm. makes us. It binds us. So the way we think is extremely important. And the mysteries is attempting to help us think in a more clear way, right?
2: Yeah. And I think you know there's been so much inundation in our culture of this particular idea because I think it's – the bastardization of this is essentially you know, the secret. For the secret, my dude. <laughs> but uh, but you know it, it's quite a contrast to the opposite, you know, cultural idea, which is that of like this kind of like scientific materialism, which says that there is that there is no mental energy inherent in the universe. That everything is a it's a chemical accident. It's it's just a chance arrangement of matter. Um, and this is actually a real like these are diametrically opposed worldviews like to believe that everything, the substance of everything is thought it's mental. Like that is entirely different from what we've been kind of led to believe culturally in the sense that there is, you know, there's, there's no inherent meaning to the universe. There's no inherent energetic aspect to the universe. It's all a series of rocks bumping into each other, essentially, whether they're, you know, atoms or or actual like space rocks forming planets and, and star systems. This is a very ancient idea that's that's starting to be kind of reintroduced and, and I think merged with the with the materialist view, which is that there is an animating intelligent energy in the universe that that is the the prime cause of the matter you know for a long time we've put matter as the cause of thought but the ancient world put thought as the cause of matter first
1: and therefore this is where you get all the teachings of these ancient systems in controlling yourself everybody thinks that this is just arbitrary like oh why do i have to subdue my passions why do i have to work on my physical body why do i have to control my thoughts why do i have to abstain from this that or whatever it's because the world is mental. And so if your thoughts aren't clear, then your view of the universe isn't clear. And you can't obtain the, the truth of how it functions. So by you know, eating certain things, not indulging in excess, uh, exercising, all the things that these ancient schools used to teach would help you create a, a mind that is more efficient and was able to see reality. So, again, this, this is why this book's so great because it's showing you the premises by which all the actual teachings are based on.
2: I think that's another thing that the secret gets wrong is that, you know, the universe is thought or it's made of thought. It's not made of your thought. It is a, it is a specific thought that's being had by an entity, if, you, if we can even use that word, that's so much greater than your own mind. That you can't even like fully grasp it in in your mind. I think a lot of people hear that the the, the universe is thought or the all is mind and think, well, well, I can just think everything to be different and then it will be. But it's not your mind. It's the all's mind. It's the all mind, so to speak. It, it is well, all of mind.
1: I do agree with you, but I mean, I think if you if you reach a certain level of mastery, you can manifest things. You know, I think the uh, the the adept. At, whether it be spiritually or, you know, in commerce or in science, like you do get to the point where you start creating things with your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I think you can reach that point. It's not you sitting on your couch wishing for a Ferrari again, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, someone like Einstein, you know, they reached a certain level of mastery over their own mind in which they were manifesting ideas. They were mimicking the all. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm
2: saying? I do. And I, and I think that's because like it, it's because of the other six principles that we're, we're about to get into is that only the starting, you know, axiom is all is mind. But there are six more principles that define it's It's essentially it's a seven step process of creation, but there's a process of creation. Things do get created. You don't just stop at Oh, they all is mind. Well, I'll just imagine whatever I want and it will be so like, no, there's there's six more principles that have to be acted upon. Because that that's the other thing is that the universe is not passive thought. It, it, it is a, a thought that manifests because, you know, there's stuff around me that I can touch. Maybe that's just signals in my brain. But either way, something has happened here to make me believe I'm touching a table and not thin air, right? Like something is being created. Well, this goes back to the, you know, the real
1: ancient mysteries, you know, where you actually had to learn real math and real science <laughs> because – you know someone like Einstein, which is tapping into the cosmos in a sense he's he's not creating stuff from thin air. what he's doing is he's understanding the rules by which the all operates that he's he's understanding the scaffolding or the framework of this mental state of the cosmos, and then he's able to derive truth from it he's able to um i don't think manipulate sorry word he's he's able to steer around the obstacles and, mm-hmm. and to gain the truth that he's specifically seeking to answer the questions, uh, which he was answering in the early 20th century. So, you know, part of this principle is that it teaches you how to understand the true nature of energy, power, and matter. And, and we have to, you know, bring back, Einstein. Well, Einstein's, you know, his special theory of relativity, his general theory of relativity is, I think, like 1905. Mm-hmm. And this is written 1912. So whoever, you know, whoever wrote this, the three initiates, Atkinson, whoever, I mean, they're actually taking some of this ideas that are coming out of modern physics mm-hmm. and applying it. Because if you talk to, I think, a lot of, of physicists today, um, they would tell you that, you know, the universe is more connected than we were ever led to believe.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's that's why it's the first principle, because it is literally the first principle. Like without accepting this without really understanding this idea you can't move any further like without without understanding the the reality of of what you find yourself in there is there's no point in, in moving on to other principles without grasping the fundamental nature because otherwise the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh principle aren't going to make any sense because we haven't established where it is that we exist this principle so let's just finish off
1: on it is essentially e equals mc squared it's you know it's you know matter equals energy and energy equals matter mm-hmm. you know and so that's where um the manipulation of the thing like the secret teaches you but it's it's the idea that matter can be turned into energy and energy can be turned into matter they're mm-hmm. essentially the same thing and so when you grasp this idea then really the universe is limitless because mm-hmm. you can you can you can manifest through your own actions changes within yourself because you're putting energy into the matter of your body and of your mind, and outputting
2: results. So the second principle, the second hermetic principle, is the principle of correspondence. And this is defined in the Kabbalah. Probably anybody who's even remotely studied occultism or esotericism has heard this phrase before. But they define it as, as above, so below. As below, so above. And I've also heard, as within, so without, and so without, as within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And it's essentially saying that everything that we see displayed in our own individual microcosmic experience is not exactly the same, but the same in structure as everything that is happening in the macrocosm of which we're observing. So this is why the ancient world looks outward to the stars and to the planets and then draws that down and extrapolates them into days of the week, colors of the rainbow, principles of hermeticism things that that we actually operate on because they notice that there is a connection between that which is above us and that which we do on earth that the things in the heavens are related to the things that happen on earth i love how this is the second one
1: and and i think it's 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 positioned so rightly because if you don't really grasp the law of correspondence you are never going to learn anything in life I'm talking about in any aspect because I think this is how the human brain works. We correspond one thing to another. That's, mm-hmm. that's how we learn. And I think it can also be applied as a test to see how much someone knows. Because if you, if you, if you neglect to understand how one system can be associated with another system, then you really don't grasp either system. Mm-hmm. You know? I'll give you an example. So, you know, in our body, we have cells and those cells make up organs and the organ makes up the body. So you could say, well, above we have stars and those stars uh, make up galaxies and those galaxies make up superclusters, for example. So it's applying uh, the microcosm to the macrocosm. But if somebody was like, well, I don't understand how you're comparing the body to the cosmos, it's a test to see that this person hasn't really mastered this principle. And without mastering this principle, you're not going to get anywhere in esoteric studies.
2: Well, I think in any studies. I, th- I think another great example of what you're talking about is found in the idea. Like, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this idea and, and many of our listeners too, that like, you don't really understand something until you can teach it. That idea is based on this principle. Basically, if like if you can't correspond your inward experience of a particular skill or a sport or a subject or whatever it is, if you can't adapt that to an exterior experience, if I can't take somebody that doesn't know anything about my own experience with the subject and I can't impart that to them and create a bridge between the two of us, the bridge between, you know, knowledge and experience and ignorance and inexperience if i can't create that correspondence then i can't teach anything which means i don't really understand it because i don't understand how to relate it to somebody that doesn't have the experiences that i do so i can't make that which is above or without like that which is within because if, if i can take somebody that's without of me and make them like what's within me by understanding what i understand then i've mastered this principle and i can actually teach something and impart something that's the only way we communicate information, at least you know, when it comes to talents and skills and experience, is by using this principle. I have to understand where it is in me so that I can see where it should be in you if I want to teach you something. Well, I mean, this is psychology in its most basic way because
1: um, if I'm a byproduct of my parents calling me stupid my entire childhood and now I hate myself and I call other people stupid... It's because that from without affected that was within. And now that within, I'm turning around and doing the same thing my parents taught me. So, I mean, psychology operates on this thing that, you know, whatever's happening inside of us is going to be manifested outside of us and vice versa. There, 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 is, a, there is a link between the two worlds, the micro and the macro, whatever they are, whether we're looking at scientifically. Or, or psychologically or whatnot, there's always a connection. And and if you can't grasp that, then you can't actually change. You will always be stuck. You will always be stunted. You will always be a person wondering why things didn't turn out better because if you can't grasp this, then how are you to overcome it?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think another thing that this does, you know, in, in terms of occult philosophy is it opens up the idea of um, different planes of existence running in both directions from human consciousness. So there's an idea in esotericism and in the ancient mysteries that, you know, we're, we're evolving through a series of grades of consciousness, that, that our goal is to, you know, you've heard this a million times, our, we're here to raise our consciousness. But what does that actually mean? Raise it to what? Where are we going? This is what we're trying to do. We, so we are currently below. We're trying to move above. We can only do that by understanding the complete continuum, by looking below us and thinking like, okay, well, how did the mineral become the vegetable? How did the vegetable become the animal? How did the animal become the human? Where does the human go from there? Like, how do we elevate our plane of consciousness, so to speak? Because we know that there, if, if there's consciousness on this level, then there must also, if we understand this principle, there must also be a higher consciousness. And we know at the very top that all is mind, because we've we've understood the first principle. So we know that there is something that's completely unknowable at our current level, but that does exist. So there is an upward progression of levels that we can understand if we master the second principle.
1: It's upward, but it's also the same at the same time. So if you look at alchemy or you look at the uh, Kabbalah, like all those systems restart. So when you go around the alchemical wheel... You go to the seventh point. You've you you begin again. Mm-hmm. You know when you reach the the top of the of the um, uh, oh the tree of life. The tree of life. Excuse yeah. me. It begins again mm-hmm. after after the tenth point, right? So, it, it, but so it, yeah, it's higher, but it's the same. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, in, in a very basic way, it's like well, the way we view God is probably how an ant views us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you can infinitely move upward and infinitely move downward, like in Theosophy. There's the concept that, you know, uh, an animal becomes a human and then a a human becomes um, the planet. And then the planet, you know, you become – and that's called the planetary logos. And then the planetary logos becomes the solar logos. So you become the solar system. and Then you become a galactic logo. And so there's like this never-ending sort of evolution into the next state of consciousness. But whatever you are, there's something below you and there's something above you. So it's like think of a ladder that has no beginning or end. There's always rungs below you and above you. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and, you know, there's a lot of really popular, like, scientific imagery that kind of bears out this principle. Like, I'm I'm sure a lot of people have seen those pictures of, uh, you know, on one side, it's a a map of human neurons. And on the other side, it's a map of the internet and its connections. And it compares the two. Or of star systems and the same thing. That basically, like, it's the same structure on different scales. Essentially. Like obviously there's different details on, on, it's on different what It's different but the same. Of. It's different but the same. And and that's that's just another way of saying as above, so below. Different but the same.
1: But beware of people that say it's all the same. It's yes. not all the, it's different and the same, but you can't say it's all different and you can't say it's all the same. Mm. It's different and the same at the same time. That's the paradox of the law of correspondence. Yeah,
2: and anytime you hear any of these principles simplified like that, like like the all is mind. Well, I'm mind. No, it's not that simple. As above, so below. Well, all above and below. Not quite. It's, it's still a paradox. It's still a mystery. This is a mystery tradition. We're not supposed to just solve it by saying everything is everything. So
1: let's move to the third principle, the principle of vibration. Nothing rests, everything moves, and everything vibrates. The Kabbalion.
2: What's, <laughs> what's the secret interpretation of this? And I mean uh, qu- the secret in quotes interpretation.
1: I mean, I, I've heard too many people I know tell me that you know I got to raise my va- my vibrations. My <laughs> vibrations. I'm are operating a low. at low vibrations. <laughs> this is one of those things that again people love abusing it, and everything is just vibrations. And I'm like, mm. yes, the universe is vibrations. I, I agree with that. You know, science would, would agree. You know, like you know, with the super string theory. You know, it's everything's operating from sort of vibrations, but it's not that simple either. Mm. Um, how are we supposed to measure that? Because this is not talking about vibrations in a scientific way. This is talking about a spiritual vibration, mm-hmm. and and I think when you look at it that way, it's something that can't be measured with instruments. So we have to be careful when you start judging people whether you know they're vibrating on a higher level or a higher plane.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's just that like you know different vibrations produce different results. I think is 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 the gist of of this idea is that you know, the lower or slower vi- uh, rate of vibration will produce denser objects, whether they're physical objects, emotional objects, mental objects, or spiritual objects, they depend on, on the rate of vibration. So what does that really mean? In, in a material sense, it could mean that like, whatever matter is vibrating slower is denser. And we can look at this in science, water at a very low vibration is frozen, it's solid. Water at a very high vibration is either boiling and at a, in a state of uh, motion or it's steam that's floating through the air and it's dissipating so we we can we can look at this in, in a very material sense and see that like lower and slower vibrations produce denser results, whereas higher and faster vibrations produce more ephemeral results.
1: nevertheless it's it, it is a good analogy for what we're trying to do so this is the idea that by heightening our vibrations quote unquote you know we 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 become more in tune with the mental state the mm-hmm. mental plane um and so you get ideas here about and, and he and he writes this in other books uh especially um on um on the different yogas, but this is where if you eat meat you are you're eating dense matter mm-hmm. and therefore you're becoming more dense and more tied to the earth you know you're you're becoming uh slower so to say spiritually this is where if you indulge in too much um alcohol or drugs you you are you're attaching yourself more to the earth than than to the air and so your vibrations are slowing down and you know as a final example it's music so when we listen to you know classical music or other music that's you know inspiring and, and draws out the best of us we're we're elevating our thoughts to a higher vibration but if we're listening to a bunch of military drum beats then we're grounding ourselves to earth so how we interact with other people uh in terms of our language what we eat what we ingest those are the things that lower our vibration or quicken our
2: vibration there's a very cheesy modern way of saying this that I, that i think actually comes out of out of the Kabbalion and its associated works, but you've heard the idea before that, you know, you are, you are the sum total of the five closest people to you that basically like you take on the vibration of the environment that you Mm -hmm. put yourself in. If you're around a bunch of people that are doing drugs and drinking all the time and just kind of not really aspiring to be anything greater than what they are. Well, then that's what you're going to be because you are not changing the kind of the nature of the motion around you. If the nature of the motion around you is cyclical and it's kind of just spinning and at the same level, then well, obviously it's never going to move. Like if you surround, if you just live with a bunch of drug addicts, it's going to be really hard for you not to be a drug. You
1: addict. get you get drowned in it. You mm-hmm. get drugged down into their activities.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's what this principle is saying is that you know we can extrapolate this from you know ice water and steam up to social circles behaviors aspirations in the mind. If your highest aspiration is to make a bunch of money, well, that's going to be your vibration. You're going to make a bunch of money. You might have to sacrifice some other things about yourself to do that. But it, it all depends on where you place your motion. That's where you'll vibrate. Like where you put your energy, that's what will move and that's what will vibrate.
1: Well, and to put this in another analogy, which is more scientific, and if you move, the, okay, the faster you move um, towards the speed of light, time begins to slow down. And if you were to reach the speed of light, time would stop completely. Now, we don't know if we could actually live moving at the speed of light. But if you're on a spaceship moving at the speed of light, time would stop. And that's why it's called an event horizon on a black hole because uh, it's sucking in light at the speed of light. And so it just turns into a... It's black. It stops. Nothing's happening. Nothing. We can't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you look at it that way, it's like you you can see the real application of, of this, this faster movement. I'm not sure it applies a hundred percent, but I, I think scientifically it's, it's a great analogy. So, you know, if we become the light, if we move at the speed of light, then we will, you know, time will stop. And if time stops, well, then you can be anywhere in the whole universe instantaneously. So, you know, maybe this idea of, you know, Becoming God, or rejoining God, or becoming one with the All—it's just a matter of if we become the Light, literally, mm-hmm. then then death fails. That's immortality because time has stopped.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny how you know modern science, in its own language and its, and in its own way of doing this essentially ends up repeating things that, you know, initiatic traditions have been saying for millennia that, you know, the more you become a being of light, the more immortal you are, you know? And and in a sense, like, obviously modern science wouldn't use that language, but using their own language, you've just described what is essentially a state of immortality and dimensionlessness.
1: Well, I think people tend to think the ancients were so great and they were mentally, but they didn't have, the science we had today—they didn't have the apparatuses, the technology. Now, if we could sort of bind the ancient knowledge with modern technology, I think the limits of of what we could become is endless. But mm-hmm. it's funny—we've gained the technology, but then we forget the meaning of all. It's just facts in a book in order to make a better cell phone.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that that uncoupling has kind of resulted in in the world where you know we've we've got this division between. Uh, all is mind and all is matter. Like I don't think it was, it was meant to be portrayed that way. I think that had we, you know, combined those two schools of thought, we'd we'd have a much more um, potentially untapped society. So the fourth principle is the principle of polarity. Everything is
1: dual. Everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature. But different in degree, extremes me, all truths are but half-truths, all paradoxes may be reconciled. The Kabbalion.
2: You know, and it's interesting that this is the fourth principle. This is the principle at the center of the seven, right? And I think that it's the one that unlocks everything. Because what it really seeks to do away with here is the idea that things are different from one another. In the sense that, like, you know, it, it, it's it's one of those ideas that kind of it doesn't exactly blow your mind but it shifts your perception enough to think that you know oh yeah there's hot and cold but both of them are temperature like there's you and me but both of us are human like there it, it's it's what establishes a connection between individual pieces and like there are individual pieces there's you and me there's this computer in this desk like there are different things but they're also the same like it's 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 a paradox that resolves itself.
1: The first time I really understood this was looking at political systems. So, you know, people are like, oh, fascists are bad and communism may be good. Or, you know, at some point some people said the opposite. They were real fans of fascists, uh, of fascism in the 1940s, 1930s, and they detested communism. But this idea that extremes meet is the idea that this polarity kind of runs in a circle. Mm-hmm. So the more extreme you become on either side, it really is circling back upon itself. And it's absolutely true, you know? Uh, and you can see this in, you know, with our political parties, with the sort of current cultural thoughts going on. Like, you, you get so opposite of something that you think you're fighting it, but you're just becoming the thing that you're fighting. Mm-hmm.
2: I think in, in the modern world, they call it like the horseshoe effect or something like that. You go so far to one extreme that you've basically crossed that elliptical and you're 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 not quite there but you're basically back at the thing that you hated in the first place and that's and that's the lesson here and I think that's kind of one of the most ancient lessons of the mystery schools is that like what you think you're opposite to is what you do like how many times have you heard like what you dislike or hate in somebody else is really just a reflection of of something that you don't like Mm -hmm. about yourself And, and and that's true I mean sometimes there are bad people that are not that you're not emulating and that they're just kind of like being dicks, but that's actually pretty rare. What's usually happening is that you're recognizing something in somebody else that either you haven't dealt with or you detest about yourself. And it's upsetting you to see it because you know, it's wrong. But when it comes to you, you're different. You, you've made yourself different from this person and given yourself an exception.
1: Well, I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders. (laughs) I'm not trying to make uh,
2: something political
1: out of this, but it's, I thought of this principle when I was listening to him. I like politics and, and I've, I've been following Bernie for, uh, you know, 10 years, right? And, and he used to say that the millionaires were bad. <laughs> well, then he became a millionaire and then it was the billionaires that were bad, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it, it, because everything we see as good and bad is, a, it, it's relative to our own position. So, you know... Even today where people are like, well, you know, the rich people are so much more rich than the than, than the middle class or the poor people. Yeah, but if you compare it two hundred years ago, the poor people today are like kings compared to the poor people two hundred mm-hmm. years ago. But you can't that's not that's you can say that, but it's not a reality because it's it's we're along this this polarity here and it's just shades. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you are, is where the other extreme is. Yeah. So if, if I went from making a hundred bucks, uh, a year to 10,000 bucks a year. That's a big jump. But then you're now at a new point and the next the you know the next point is now $100,000, mm-hmm. right? And when you get there then it's like, well, no, this is okay. I thought it was a lot, but it's not. Now a million dollars is a lot. Mm-hmm. And and you just keep moving forward or backwards on the spectrum. So I think a lot of the conflict we have as a society is not understanding this principle. Like, we're just fed a bunch of nonsense about how other people are different than us. And the, 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 the polarity is just so different. It's, it's, we're so far away from that opposite point. But, but in truth, that's just a perspective. And if you can overcome the perspectives, you'll realize that half the problems really don't exist.
2: Well, and, and again, that's the purpose of the Kabbalah. to illustrate these principles by which we can overcome these obstacles. Like, it's not saying that the obstacles shouldn't exist or that they're, you know, placed there by some kind of conspiracy that's trying to keep us down. It's just these are natural conditions of the universe. And, it, and if you don't understand them, then you'll feel like you're trapped here. But you can very easily move out of this yeah. by understanding, like, well, the, the continuum that I see, because we have this tendency to place ourselves at one end of the spectrum and think nothing can exist beyond that. But really what this is teaching us is that wherever you are and the thing that you're, you think is different from you, on both sides, it continues. Like there's something that, that goes beyond whatever you've declared the other and there's something that goes beyond you. Like you, you are not the totality of, of the continuum of duality. It's a very arrogant and naturally arrogant human thought to be like, well, I'm one pole and what I hate is another pole and that's it. There's probably more to it, and you might actually be at a different point on the spectrum than you realize because you're not really observing it objectively. The whole point of this is to, is to realize that there is something to observe objectively about this, and it's probably not what my first reaction is. So the next principle is that of rhythm. Everything
1: flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swings manifests in everything. The measure of the swing... To the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm compensates. The Kabbalion.
2: Well, and I think so. This naturally follows the principle of polarity because this is, this is how polarity actually works. Like, So we've established that there are these two ends to a spectrum. And what tends to happen in nature is that things move back and forth on the spectrum. Look at history. We move from one end of the, of the political spectrum to another. We go from monarchy to liberty. We go from communism to fascism. We go from one end to another, authority to freedom, and back and back and back and back and back and forth again, because that's, we don't really transcend these things. We kind of like you've, you've heard before that history repeats itself. Well, this is why, because we're just moving back and forth. The, respo- the enlightened response, at least according to the Kapalian, is not to get caught up in the left to right motion, but to move in an upwards direction. Because the further you go up a swinging pendulum, the further you're actually moving to the left and right. You're still moving as you go, but if you're at a higher point on the pendulum, then your range of motion is smaller. And the smaller your range of motion gets, the more you are in a state of balance.
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially what you've said, distilled down, is the rise and fall of nations. It's life and death of an individual. It's the destruction and birth of stars. I mean, this is, yeah, everything has its time, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can begin to realize that, like going up this pendulum like you mentioned, then it's not so scary. You know, we're, we don't get so sad. You know, the people way down low on the pendulum, they're the ones that are the, the most scared. You know, they're fearful, they're embarrassed— they're jealous. All those like crude emotions is because they don't understand the swing. And so the swing is just taking them on this like this this rough boat ride through the ocean, right? You know, they're on a ship and the waves are just thrashing and they don't understand why. But you go up that pendulum like you stated and you're like, oh, now I understand why there's waves. Now I understand why things are being uh, pushed back and forth. And so then your life, your death, all the all the good and bad things between coasts that happen to you, they make sense and, and then you're no longer scared and you're no longer sad and you're no longer jealous and you're no longer all that stuff that just makes us awful human beings.
2: Well, and I think this is an exceptional the, – the, the time that we're living through right now is an exceptional exa- example of exactly what you're just talking about because you know we, we've kind of like – I don't know if it's at the rate at which we consume information or, or what contributes to this but we act – these days as if every crisis that happens (laughs) is like the only crisis that's ever afflicted humanity and everything for the last four and a half thousand years has just been peace and prosperity like we literally at least in this country we literally had this very same set of circumstances manifest only a hundred years ago and it's just that most of us weren't alive for it that we and we don't remember it and it wasn't really talked about before this that we think that this whole like pandemic situation is new like, we go back to the, the 1300s in Europe when a third of the population died of the plague. Like, that was probably pretty frightening at the time. But on a, on a long enough view of the pendulum, we can notice that humanity moves in and out of these states of crisis and peace, of conflict and resolution. Like, this is not the only time when things are going to appear chaotic. And, and and the times of order that we nostalgically look back to, those are not going to be the only times of order. Order will manifest again. Things will calm down. They'll get excited again. Like, this is what happens. You know, our own lifetimes are not enough to measure the entirety of the human experience.
1: Well, I think this principle, if we were to tie it to a human study, would be history. Those that know history know the rhythm of life because they... You're right. We, we don't live long enough to understand these things. But that's why we have developed writing and books and the Internet. Like we have all this knowledge. We can go back and, and in a decent way, you know, know what they did, especially in the last two, three, four, five hundred years. Um, so, you know, like this thing with the pandemic, like we, we have data from the Spanish, uh, the Spanish influenza. You know, we have data from the bubonic plague, all those type of things that has happened in history. So then we can compare. So here is where comparison becomes the tool by which to understand that things aren't as bad as we thought they were. Or if they are really bad, then then we can do something about it because we're like, well, you know, this happened in the past, whatever situation it might be, and it was never this bad, so this is pretty bad, and we need to react quickly to it. But those that don't master history will never master this principle because they're just they're ignorant. They don't have anything to compare to. And, you know... I've said this before on a show, you know, if you're a high school, you know, uh, boy or girl and, and you, you know, somebody breaks up with you, you think it's the end of the world and, and emotionally you feel like the world's coming to an end because your first love broke up with you and doesn't love you. It's not that big of a deal as you move on because you create new relationships and now you create a historical pattern by which to compare your relationships. But the first time it happens, you have nothing to compare to and so you're broken on the inside. Well, I think when we look at pandemics, like even if we look at this election, right? You know, the 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 supposed fraud. I'm not going to say it's true or false, but what I will say is that if you look every four years, there are accusations of fraud in every election while I've been alive, Mm -hmm. right? Now maybe this one has reached sort of a pinnacle of that, but there's always those accusations, and I talk to people, and they're like, "No, this is the first time it's happening." (laughs) No, it's not. And we'll get over this like we've gotten over
2: all the other situations. But mm-hmm. people
1: think it's the end of the world because they don't learn history.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, too, that they're, you know, in order to sell more news, it's great to get people to forget that they're on a pendulum, right? Because then every new thing is just this, this thing that's emerging out of a vacuum. And, oh, it's so horrible that we're all afflicted by this thing. Like, when it really just takes turning around on the pendulum and be like, oh, that's where we're swinging from. Huh. And we'll return there again. Like, that, that we move on this, on this constant rhythm that really, like, is beyond any individual human being's control. Like, we, we are moved by forces that we don't understand and that we cannot control or stop. That's just a fact of life, and it doesn't mean the universe is evil because that's true. Like, it's just, it is what it is. You can still find happiness and, and become a content and fulfilled human being knowing that there are things beyond your control in the universe nations rise and fall brother axel and you know it's
1: you know it sounds like a grand statement but you know each of us will rise and fall too you know mm-hmm. you're you're a child you grow up you, you literally re- rise and fall you rise you know you you know you know financially uh, academically you know your mind is clear and then you start to decay you get old and mm-hmm. you start forgetting things and your body starts failing and then you die that's going to happen no one can tell you otherwise it's going to happen right and so nations do it we do it everything does it so don't take life so seriously mm-hmm. to think that you can avoid mm-hmm. the rhythm of well, life well don't take
2: the things that you can't control so seriously there, there's, there's plenty of stuff in your life to take seriously Your your the vibration you surround yourself with you can control that take that seriously you know what's happening on the grand stage of geopolitics that you're never going to be invited to participate in I don't have to worry about that so much until it's like an eminent a emergency in your well, life. I think that's why it's
1: dangerous to, to to when people say, I will never do that ever in my life. You don't know what you're going to do 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. You should never say never because the pendulum is swinging and there is a rhythm and you don't know where, where you'll find yourself and if you'll need to do anything. Mm-hmm. Remain open. Follow the swings And try to observe and not react to that. Well, and keep climbing upwards.
2: Make you know, make that range of motion as small as you possibly can. You're still going to get moved, but the further you get up the pendulum, the the more you can see this from a bird's eye view, the less it's going to affect you. Well, in masonically speaking, you know, the point from which the pendulum swings is
1: the center. Mm -hmm. The pendulum is essentially moving on a quarter or the fourth part of a circle, right? Mm -hmm. From Mm -hmm. from extreme to extreme, but the, the but it rests on a center. So climbing the pendulum, the goal is to actually get to the center. Once you reach the center, there's no more swings. All yeah. swings stop. And there you can see the entire circle of 360 degrees mm-hmm. perfectly and clearly.
2: You can see the all, I suppose. Yeah. You can, you can see what the pendulum has, has been tracing out. Because if you, if you look at a, a pendulum swinging on Earth— like the if it's big enough, you can actually see the rotation of the Earth. In this, it doesn't just go back and forth in a straight line. It's actually moving in a circle with the rotation of the Earth. So you can see that you know the further you move up, the more the actual design becomes apparent to you. And the more information you have, the better you can understand the pattern that's being traced out. And in masonry, it says those that meet in the center,
1: they cannot err.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, from from the center, a mason cannot err. Cannot make a mistake because he can see everything.
1: So let's move on to the sixth principle, which is cause and effect. Everything, excuse me, every cause has its effect. Every effect has its cause. Everything happens according to law. Chance is but a name for law not recognized. There are many planes of causation, but nothing escapes the law. The Kabbalion.
2: This, I think, is the part that they like to leave outside of the secret because this is the consequences of, of, of natural law here. And as human beings, we don't really like consequences all that much. But this basically says that everything in the universe, every action, every thought, every, every step forward that is taken is connected to everything else that has happened in the universe and that nothing emerges out of nothing. You know, unless, you know, we get into philosophical discussions about the all and the limits of the all and and what's beyond the all and where the all came from. But while we live, this is a very practical part of the philosophy is that, you know, while you're alive, you are under the law of cause and effect. You're not going to escape it. So make sure you're causing the effects that you want to live with, because you will get your effects and you will have your causes. So we can choose to make our causes and our effects better, but we cannot, you know, excuse ourselves from the consequences of our actions. Another way of looking at it too is that
1: this law of cause and effect—it's binding on everything—and I think this has helped scientific minds, you know, the the late alchemists, the the people that developed, you know, science and the Enlightenment to, to understand that. There's nothing random happening. There's no chance. This isn't divine intervention. There are reasons that we can trace back to the source. Unfortunately, too, I think this stunts us a little bit because people think, well, if I can't find a reason, then it doesn't exist. And therefore, if you have a a belief or a hypothesis that, that can't be explained, it's not true. Well, no, just because something can't be explained doesn't mean that it's not actually happening. So I think this this, this is a double-edged sword. It's mm-hmm. absolutely true, but people can use it as a justification uh, either way of, of negating their mm-hmm. duty.
2: Well, I think my, my favorite part of this in particular is that chance is the name for law not recognized. So whatever we whatever we experience or see or can observe or can repeat but can't explain isn't something that we get to just discard. Because it doesn't fit into our previously you just know, not recognized. formed schemes. It's like it just doesn't fit yet because yeah. you don't understand it. Yeah. And you may not ever, you may not reach that level of understanding where you can figure out why certain things happen the way that they do. But there is a reason for it. You know, Just because our human minds can't comprehend where on that spectrum of, of polarity it may be or at which point in the swing of the pendulum it is, that doesn't mean that it's not there and that we shouldn't continue to look for it.
1: Well, I mean, at the end, I think one of the biggest problems with humanity is our, our inability to play chess. Because in the book, they, <laughs> they, they, they associate this principle with a chess board. And, you know, you can be a pawn or you can be the one, you know, moving the pieces. So that's the master's moving the pieces, right? But it, it's 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 a very good example because how many of us are actually thinking about the consequences to what we do? Like, it's like, you know, I say this, I do this, and then I've heard all these people's feelings. You know, my wife's crying, my kid hates me. Um, and I just didn't think about what I was doing. But if I had thought about it, I'd been like, yeah, that'd be a bad idea. I shouldn't, mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't do that. But we're not really playing chess. And I think it's, you know, I think they say it's, you're a psychopath if you view life as a chessboard. I think that's nonsense. I think it's just logical uh, that you should look at life as a chess game and and if you want to win chess you got to be two three four five moves ahead of where you are you need to know where you're having if you're just moving your piece one at a time uh and not thinking about further moves you can't win a chess game
2: you just can't you're gonna lose well i think the the accusation of psychopathy comes from the idea that you know you you're treating the the exterior world as your opponent in chess but that's not what it is the the real opponent of spiritual chess is is yourself is is the person that will do and say things without thinking about them because what you just said is really important you have to be three or four or five moves ahead of yourself when you're acting in order to understand the consequences because you're right after all that negative stuff happens you're like oh man if only i had known and i i could have figured it out I wouldn't have done all this stuff because yeah. this is very unpleasant and I didn't mean to hurt all these people. Yeah. But if you're four or five moves ahead of yourself and you think to yourself, well, if I say that, they're going to think this, then they'll do this to this person and that person will be upset and I will be the one to cause it. You're four moves ahead of yourself. And in order to beat that lower version of yourself that's going to cause all this emotional destruction, you need to be ahead of that and make the necessary moves and actually think about your actions to avoid those consequences. Yeah, this
1: is basically saying be a 5D chess player (laughs) of the universe. You know, be a wizard, you know exactly what you're doing, and yeah, don't be manipulated by other people. Because this goes the other way. You can see how you're being manipulated by other people's chess moves too. Mm -hmm. You know you can start to see other people's designs and webs, mm-hmm. so I think it goes both ways i mean it's primarily for you to act, but you know you may be reacting to people mm-hmm. and you should discover and not the cause it. Yeah. exactly as a last point on on cause and effect, we need to realize too, according to the Cabalion and we can see this in masonry in the separation of degrees is that th- there are different causes and effects on different planes, so like the physical plane has physical consequences, you know? Like if I put, you know, in physics, you know, you, you put something in motion, um, it'll stay in motion until something resists it, until there's friction, right? Uh, that, that would be sort of a cause and effect kind of scenario in physics. But on a mental plane, there's different causes and effects. These are, these are mental ideas, you know? This is, this is where we get things like uh, envy and hatred, you know? So there are things that cause those those emotions to appear in us. And they're, they're thoughts that come to us, that which then our body reacts with certain chemicals to create those emotional states. So by w- realizing that, we can control our conduct. But I think there are even higher planes, like the spiritual plane, in which there's a different sort of cause and effect there. That by uh, committing ourselves to certain movements and, and meditations and prayers and, um, you know, the, you know, theurgy basically, then we create effects at a spiritual level. And as you move up, I think it's harder and harder to detect these, you know, using any sort of science. You know, the physical mm-hmm. is easy. The, the mental is a little easier, uh, or excuse me, a little, a little harder. And then, you know, finally when you get to this sort of cause and effect on a spiritual plane, you, it's so internal that only you can see what's happening within yourself. You, you can't even detect this cause and effect in others because it's, you're moving inward. You know the planes move in upon
2: themselves, not out. Do you think then that is the that's the kind of operating principle behind things like Masonic ritual? That by doing, uh, and I and I mean this in the literal sense, extraordinary causes, you will generate extraordinary result. Like by doing things that are not. Normally done, both on a physical, but also an emotional and a spiritual plane. Like in the work of a lodge, when you're conducting a ritual, these things are not normally done. Therefore, these abnormal call these abnormal effects will take place that will change things in ways that you know that natural causes and effects wouldn't necessarily.
1: Yeah, I think the signs, the words, the tokens. um You know, people from the outside would say these look silly. You know, why are you doing this? this? Is a stupid club? But no. We, I think it's because those are mimicking certain aspects of nature in a spiritual way that that's, it's affecting our psyche. It's affecting our soul. Mm-hmm. And so by repeating these movements, by, by repeating certain words, incantations, invocations, etc., we are altering the vibrations of our spiritual uh, being. And so this is where all the laws start to compact. So when we understand these on a physical level, then we can move on to a mental level. And, and I think of you know, finalizing at a spiritual level of understanding of these principles. So it's funny. It's like there's th- there's there's seven laws, but each of these laws are operating seven within its own plane. Mm-hmm. So there's really more than seven. Yeah. You know, it's seven times how many planes you believe there are. And in some traditions, there's seven planes. So it's seven times 7
2: mm-hmm. So let's get to that seventh principle here. Something nice and easy and uh, not controversial at all. The principle of gender. Gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Gender manifests on all planes. Or so the Kabbalah says. I've
0: been
1: been in a couple study groups with this. And man, some people got real upset because with the uh, modern social justice movement, um, you say this and you're a misogynist. Uh, or this is antiquated, or this is a byproduct of the patriarchy. Um, I think that's an uneducated point of view because this is not talking about men and women. Mm -hmm. This is talking about masculine and feminine. So this is talking about a magical principle that there are sort of two forces, and every male body has both masculine and feminine energy in it, Mm -hmm. and every female body also has male energy. Or masculine and feminine mm-hmm. energy. So it, we every every living being is composed of this dual energy, mm-hmm. and it's not talking about uh, gender roles or this or that. That's 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 for cultures and governments and, and people to argue about. This is at a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. So it's saying that we both have these, and in fact, what we need to do is bring them into balance. Mm-hmm. And when we have balance, then then we have the inner male and the inner female. Um, meeting together and equal
2: well and the the other idea here is that this is the energy that you know the the magician or the adept or the initiate this is what they'll this is what fuels all of this and if it's it's interesting you can actually look at this like in society like the um necessarily the tension but the the kind of the magnetic force between men and women in terms of like you know starting families and everything this this is at the heart of the origin of civilization is this kind of like force between the two physical genders as they were manifested now obviously the principle is embodying something that's far more esoteric and occult something that goes much deeper than what we see on the in the outside world Um, But like this movement back and forth between masculine and feminine and the interplay of these two energies is what creates everything in the world. Like Every human being is a product of the interaction of masculine and feminine energy. There's no denying that. That's where we come from. So all of human life, all of human consciousness, and all of human achievement is the result of the interplay of masculine and feminine forces.
1: And I think that's the problem with people that are... A conflict with with themselves. is because their masculine and feminine forces are not in balance. They they don't speak to each other. They're not communicating. So people that are overly, you know, masculine. Let's call, uh, uh, what's what's the term? Um, um, oh god. Are you thinking of the Proud Boys? No, I'm not thinking of the Proud Boys. I'm thinking of uh, toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity. Okay. I mean, look. I mean, that does exist as as a concept where you know some men become so manly that they're barbarians, you know? <laughs> it's impossible like, to
2: talk to. Yeah, yeah
1: I mean, every, everything is a, is a measuring contest, so to say. and I, you know, So that does exist. And then on the other side, you could say that, you know, some women are so feminine that um, they negate the possibilities of, of accepting the other side of energy. You know, really, like, if, if you look at the, the modern uh, idea of gender and sex that's emerging, um, it may have come from the Kabbalans. You know, mm-hmm. it basically says that that this principle manifests on the physical plane as sex, mm-hmm. you know, males and females. But it, that gender is a term used on a higher plane. It's an
2: energetic force. Exactly. That, yeah, that can be that can be different from one's physically manifested sex. And I, and I think that the Kabbalion actually completely allows for that. It's not – to me, this is not antiquated or binary or oppressive in any way. It actually it, – it affirms the principle that one's gender is a result of interior forces – that are displayed in the outside world depending on how they're balanced within the physical form. But that the physical form is not the truth of these ideas. That these ideas exist at a different level, at a place that we can't really approach with with physical manifestations. Now today I think this
1: has been taken in a context with saying, well, you know, there are, there are more than two genders. Um, and we can see that that's happening worldwide, you know, mm-hmm. with, with – you know, additional pronouns and and designations for for these different genders, and I think that sort of follows suit with um, the cabalian. I think it's it's still. I think the modern movements are, are they're negating the spiritual side of these things and, mm-hmm. and focusing uh, on the on the physical side of it way too much. So I think they're kind of missing the mark with it but the idea is still there that you know we you know no two human beings have the same composition of masculine and feminine forces mm-hmm. so in a sense there are 7 billion genders on the planet there are two sexes biologically mm-hmm. but there are as many genders as there are people, at least in, the, in, the, in this sort of perspective of the Kabbalion, because we all are are different. It's like, it's like having two gases and, you know, you just have different mixtures of those gases. Mm-hmm. You know, 90-10, 80-20, 60-40, 55-45, we're all different. And, and we're changing it as we make decisions to change things in our lives.
2: And so on to infinity. I mean, like... it it definitely identifies like if we go back to the principle of polarity like there are these two opposite forces like and like you said with your example about toxic masculinity and femininity we've all met people that are hyper masculine and hyper feminine like those two archetypes do exist we all know uh, know of those kinds of people but there are like you said an infinite combination of the two energies and like you said the real the real adept is the person that can change that combination according to the needs of the situation or to whatever end it is that they're working towards. Like if, if certain combinations are needed in order to get one's mind or consciousness to a particular place, then that's what's necessary in order to do, like to accomplish that work. Like you have to be able to change your mental state in order to get to those places. My observation is that people that are engaged in esoteric
1: work tend to be actually quite balanced i don't you don 't find like overly masculine men or overly feminine women in esoteric traditions. They tend to be down the middle mm-hmm. um, and I think that's because this type of work that we 're engaged in in masonry is something that tries to bring balance you know, and that balance is bringing these two forces of gender in to recognize one, each other and to balance each other out so one does not dominate the other. I mean, what's the best type of marriage? Is the best type of marriage one where one person dominates the other or is it where each, of the, each you know, members of, of, you know, each person in the marriage, um, though they may have different roles, have an equality of mm-hmm. participation. And contribution. And contribution, you know, and I, and I think that's, what we're trying to do, but it's you know, we can look at it a marriage, but we can look at it at a partnership in a business, we can look at within a church, you know, in terms of the congregation and, and the minister. Like when you see real equality, it's because you have two groups or two persons of different roles recognizing the need for the opposite role and not being dominant over the other.
2: Well, and I think in a, in a more mundane way, too, you can kind of look at the history of um. You know, chivalric organizations of which I would say that masonry is a descendant of but like so why did the order why did these orders of chivalry even emerge in the first place right it's because you had these hyper masculine knights who had a bunch of weaponry and training that were running around slaughtering peasants and you had to soften that. You had to restrain that with art and poetry and manners and social graces, like things that were not common to these absolute barbarians that were just trained to to execute violence, which at that time was a necessary skill, but it had to be tempered. In order to move out of the Dark Ages, this time where like, you know, might made right and you could just go and smash your enemies and then you were the king. That, for, that idea had to be softened with these you know, traditionally more feminine ideas of, of artistic expression and, and intuition and poetry and, and these kind of like softer elements that could temper that and bring it more into balance so you'd have a rational human being that wouldn't just fly off and, and kill the nearest peasant when they got angry.
1: So here's one of the axioms from the end of the Kabbalion. It says, The wise ones serve on the higher, but rule on the lower. They obey the laws coming from above them, but on their own plane, and those below them they rule and give orders, and yet in doing they form a part of the principle instead of opposing it. The wise man falls in with the law. By understanding its movements, he operates it instead of being its blind slave. Just as does the skilled swimmer turn this way and that way, going and coming as he will, instead of being as the log which is carried here and there, so is the wise man as compared to the ordinary man, and yet both swimmer and log Wise man and fool are subject to the law. He who understands this is well on the road to mastery. This is one of my favorite um, little passages from from Nicobalion because I, it's it's true. Like we 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 are there's a river of consciousness. There's a river of truth, and the log and the swimmer are both on there. But one has become conscious enough, using the seven Hermetic laws, to to be able to manipulate the currents and and navigate through the water so they can go where they want within the river you mm-hmm. can't leave the river yeah. you, you can't uh turn the river backwards but you there th- this is what free will is so i think what they're saying is that the log which is the ordinary human being is so unaware of the laws that they think they're free but they're not they're just a log going down the river and the rivers controlling them but if you become a master over yourself you attain some level of free will And I think this is the purpose of Freemasonry. Freemasonry is trying to educate us and be like, look, we're all born logs, but become a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And here's how you become a swimmer. And ironically, the first step to becoming the swimmer is massive amounts of discipline. It's massive amounts of of preventing yourself from doing the things that your body wants to do. And otherwise, you're just going to stay a log.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we see that in the symbolism of masonry in particular with the rough and the perfect ashlar. We're all born filled with knobs and excrescences and rough surfaces and weird parts coming off of us at odd angles. And the only way to even get close to becoming uh, a perfect stone is to start knocking stuff off. Like, and that's, you know, that's painful to chisel things off of you that you thought were a part of, a necessary part of your own existence. That's difficult. Just as the log gets bashed against the rocks in the river, so too must the the ashlar take the blows from the hammer and and have these things knocked off of themselves. And I, I think you're right; like it only starts with massive discipline, not necessarily just physical, but in controlling yourself and, and shaping those rough edges to be something other than what they are. That's only the very beginning. Then you have to, you know, to use the Kabbalion's analogy. Once you've turned yourself from a log into a human then you have to learn how to swim. And that's what I think the seven hermetic principles are doing is that, okay, you've managed to become a human. You're, you're trying to look beyond, you know, whatever it was that you were, uh, kind of ruled over by. Here's how you start to navigate these waters.
1: In a Masonic lodge, you have seven officers that are of the utmost importance, the three principal officers and the four assistant officers. Um, these are the seven master masons that make a lodge just, perfect, and regular. And I think it's, here we go, number seven, right? Because I believe in, in one way of looking at these seven officer lodges, they are, each one of them, one of the seven hermetic principles. And by filling that office, being that officer for a period of time, you are working through this principle. You're, you're emulating it in ritual, so the movements and the words that you memorize to fulfill that position and your duty in that position is a fulfillment of that part of the law. So whether you're conscious of it or unconscious of it, you are becoming that hermetic principle. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's more powerful if you're aware of it. And that's why I think Masonic ritual, you know, when we look at our male craft brethren who repeat the ritual and have no idea why they're doing it, it's just some sort of club-like thing they do. They're still getting something out of it on an unconscious level. But to those that are aware of it, like in co-masonry, then it's even more potent because you're really manifesting these principles in such a way as to evolve more quickly.
2: Well, and I think that's you know, one of the many reasons that masonry is structured as a progressive art, like that there are a series of degrees that you move through because you can't just understand all seven of these all at once. If you've never heard of the seven hermetic principles, you know, trying to jam them all into your head at once doesn't make any sense and and they proceed in a logical order, you want to start with the idea that all is mind and contemplate that for a second because that's going to make the principle of correspondence make some sense and so on and so forth throughout the structure of it. Like you you have to proceed just in the same way as in masonry, you proceed through the officers. You don't just jump right into being the right worshipful master as soon as you take your third degree. You move through each one of these principles, understand them and then you're able to use the next one, which has compounded the ones before. So I got a question for
1: you, brother Axel. Is the master of a lodge mentalism
2: or gender? Is it the first or the seventh law? This is the hokiest answer in all the universe, but I think it's both. in, in the sense that <laughs> you know, you move you move through this ladder. So in in the sense that mental gender being the or gender being the principle of creativity well a master creates the work of the lodge by holding everything together by being the linchpin of those officers by guiding them through their work they are the ones that are creating whatever is being created in the Masonic lodge but they're also at the very top like they they are the mind of the lodge they hold the entire structure of the ritual within their mind you know, all the, all the officers below the master, they don't have to have a complete grasp of the lodge. It helps. But if they only know their job, like that's enough because they're assigned a particular duty, whereas the master is responsible for the entire lodge. So I think that represents a point of transition in, in the sense that both are needed because really it sits between, like you said earlier with the alchemical wheel, when you finish, you're actually beginning again.
1: I agree with you, I, but I, I would say that the Tyler is mentalism because the Tyler stands outside of the door of the lodge, and really the whole lodge is encapsulated within that duty. Mm-hmm. The Tyler being a senior past master. So it's not somebody new, but somebody that's, that's expert. So I tend to see the master as the principle of gender. Once you've mastered being a master mm-hmm. of a lodge, then you have mastered the principle of gender. I think that's the ultimate thing. Like you know, as a senior warden and a junior warden, you know one is very masculine and one is very feminine. But then as master, you reconcile Combine the two, yeah. and then and I, and I agree because I think at the end of your tenure as a master, well, you're, then you're supposed to become an immediate past master and a Tyler. So yeah, I think it. Re, I, I think it's beautiful what you said. You were a begin again because the master is never done. Mm-hmm. They've they've mastered one aspect and now they must begin again. Um, from the first principle all the way to the seventh, but I do think the order is important. Yeah, you can't start with gender. Mm-hmm. You start and with gender. Would it go make out
2: sense? Out of order, either. No, like I, I, I think that the, the Kabbalion does outline a very logically consistent order to the principles that makes a lot of sense. You know, starting from. A, a first principle of the substrate of the universe down to how new things are created. I think moving in that order is very important. And, and you know, things like that, you know, we're really trashed on the secret in this episode, but I think things. No, like, I mean, it's good, it's good, but you gotta take it, you know. Things like in that stride. have a tendency to be like, well, you can disassemble and remake anything however you want it. And I think there is value to be found in following orders that are older than living memory in the sense of like, maybe these people knew what they were talking about. And maybe it is a a, a complete um, uh, creation of of William Atkinson. But I think what he's, what he's outlined in the Kabbalion and maybe it was him or maybe it was some other people. It really was three initiates. I think it points to something that is older and more consistent than we necessarily give those kinds of things credit for.
1: So in closing, Just one last little bit from the Kabbalion here. True hermetic transmutation is a mental art. And I think that's a beautiful way to finish off our podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari, and does not represent the official views of Universal Formation. Universal co is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit UniversalFreemasonry.org.